Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact, you can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Hey, before we get the show started, I wanted to let you know we are giving away a bunch of brand new black magic gear. Yeah, cameras, switchers, DaVinci Resolve licenses, a bunch of awesome stuff. So stay tuned to learn how you can enter to win free gear from Black Magic. And we're going to tell you all about it later on in this episode. Now cue the music. Hey, welcome to the 215th episode of Just Shoot It, a podcast about filmmaking, screenwriting, and directing. This episode is brought to you by patron Jake Borgia. I'm Oren Kaplan. And I'm Matt Enlow. Today we've got Clark Duke on with his debut feature, Arkansas. It's a fun, quirky noir that takes place in the world of the Dixie Mafia. Clark both uh, stars in the film along with a handful of very famous people. Liam Hemsworth, Vince Vaughn, John Malkovich. Yeah, it's a real treat. A star-studded cast. Clark is in it as well. Uh, He's a passionate filmmaker. You'll remember him from The Office and Hot Tub Time Machine. But as we learn, he's a lifelong film fan and has wanted to be a director since he was a wee lad. So he's been working towards that dream and finally had this movie out on VOD now. Yeah, I thought he had some really interesting insight about the difference between being an actor and a director on set. And we just really got into the craziness of trying to make a relatively low-budget movie with relatively high-budget stars and how those two things go together. And it's fun. We love listening to the struggles of filmmakers. And also, he walks us through the whole path of how he got this movie made, which I know is a theme of our show, but I thought his story was incredibly relatable considering that he is a guy that already knew a lot of people, Mm -hmm. did not have much of a leg up compared to anyone else. It's all about making a good script and a good pitch and working really hard to get it made. Yeah, I think, I don't want to speak for you, Oren, but there's a part of me that maybe in the back of my mind was thinking like, oh, you know, this guy, he's been in these movies, he's been on TV, you know, he's got to be so well connected. I bet it was easy for him. So the worst sort of uh, thought process you could have. And it couldn't be further from the truth. I think listeners are really going to relate to the struggles that he had because they're just like the ones you have right now as you're trying to make your first feature. But don't you kind of feel like Zach Braff had it really easy when he made Garden State? Like he just called up some people, got a couple million dollars, called up Natalie Portman, was like, hey, be in my movie. I mean, I think that we all want to believe that because we want to believe that at some point... It gets easier. And uh, 
I, I just don't think that that's true. Maybe like you know the phone numbers a little faster. Maybe you have a track record with people. That is true. But also, it's still just friggin' hard to make an indie movie. And it's hard for famous people and unfamous people and rich people and unrich people. Right. If poor people, you might call them. And so... <laughs> There's a, just a ton of takeaways, and I think it's always especially interesting to talk to an actor or a person who spent a ton of time in front of the camera. It's interesting to learn what he liked and didn't like about the different filmmakers that he worked with and what he took with him to set. Well, before we talk to Clark, it is May 6th, 2020. We are potentially nine days away from the end of quarantine, potentially nine years from the end of quarantine. We have no idea. So with that as the context, what have you been working on lately, Matt? Yeah, well, so uh, as avid listeners will notice from all of my recent unpaid endorsements, I've been cooking a ton, but I've also been doing um, a decent job of getting through a screenplay that I've kind of had on the back burner for a long time. Oh, what's the genre of your screenplay? It's like a horror comedy. Oh, cool. The roughest, broadest pitch would be if like Judd Apatow or Albert Brooks made the thing. Okay, that's cool. Um, yeah, so it's really fun. I think it's got a, a lot of lo-fi visuals that I think are going to be really great and lets me move the camera in a way that I want, but also digs in on just like a straight-up relationship comedy. Well, given that you just produced an indie feature very recently, are you writing this script with the idea in mind that you could make it on a budget yourself? It is designed to be small and is, I realized, pretty late in the game um, kind of a cabin in the woods movie. It's just the suburbs, but it mostly takes place in and around this neighborhood. Like it's a little cul-de-sac. The Burbs is kind of a touch point for me as well, which is like that old Tom Hanks, Joe Dante movie. Mm-hmm. So it is written with a budget in mind. It's really like a forehander. And I think that it's appealing enough that if I can find the right cast, we could put it together and make it pretty quickly. So with that said, is it the type of thing where you're going to just try to get it made as fast as possible? Or is it the type of thing where you're going to try to get it to be as big as it can possibly be at the expense of the speed? To be honest, my plan had been that I would write this one to be as big as it wants to be, probably more in the 10 to 50 million range um, based off of whatever talent and VFX end up, end up, end up in it. Um, and that that would be the one that I would send to my people and we would spend a couple of years trying to get made. The next one I would write to be that $15,000. In the meantime, movie. Exactly. That had been my plan, though in writing it, none of it is especially expensive. There's a version of this movie that's got the technocrane and all the fun Steadicam shots and we kind of up the VFX a decent amount and it stars Seth Rogen. But there's also a very fun version that would be meaningful to my career that's $100,000 or $200,000, you know? Yeah. Um, that, that stars my favorite up-and-comer who you haven't heard of yet. Seth Rogen's younger brother. Yeah, his baby brother. Dave yeah. Rogen. Yeah, Ben Rogen, actually. <laughs> Dave is the middle one. He's already oh. too big. So I don't know is the short answer to the long question. Because for me, part of this quarantine, and I know Matt Pollack touched on this when we spoke to him, is... I have just really been re-inspired to make stuff for myself, you know, where I'm the camera person and mm-hmm. I'm the editor and I'm the potentially a voice behind the the camera as well. For some reason, I would be more excited by a $100,000 movie right now than a $5 million movie, I think, because yeah. 
I feel like we could just go and make it and it's what I would want it to be, not what 700 people that gave $10,000 each want it to be. I mean, there's a real freedom in that, certainly. And it, it kind of gets to the real question I wanted to talk to you about, Oren. As I'm writing this, there's that constant question of like, well, is anyone going to care about this or want to watch this once we're done with the quarantine? Are these people's problems pertinent? Like, I like to write personal, kind of intimate stake stories, and that's why I added a supernatural element, right? Is so that you could be zany and run around and, and have some fun scares and stuff. But the core of this story is really just like, is this couple going to make it, both physically and emotionally? Well, I think they always want that. They don't know they want it. Who said it? Robert Zemeckis or someone, right? That people come to the movie for the spectacle and they stay for the truth. Mm-hmm. So that what you're talking about is like the truth part of things. But the question is, is the spectacle going to get them to pay for it on Apple movies to even, right. you know, we're in this weird situation where we're during quarantine, we're interviewing all these awesome directors that have made awesome movies and we are getting more movies sent to us to watch than we have time to watch. And a lot of what is going on in my head is like, would I rather be watching Never Have I Ever, you know, on Netflix, a show that everyone is talking about? Or would I rather be watching this amazing indie sci-fi thriller horror movie that a potential guest has been sent? And you'll probably be talking to the director for an hour or two right. in a week. So there's a lot of incentive to, to watch that movie. Yeah. 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 But sometimes it's easier to just sit on the couch with my wife and watch the thing that I know both of us will be interested in yeah Yeah, and that has recognizable people or recognizable producers or something i don't know it's tough that's why i think when you go low budget when you go first film when you go indie movie high concept is just really important you know you look at a movie like blue ruin or you look at a movie like chronicle or you look at a movie like bachelorette party like there are Mm -hmm. which is probably not high concept (laughs) Um, well, it, it is in that it's like a one crazy night, I guess. I, you know, I don't know that I would call Blue Ruin high concept. Look, it's a revenge movie, I guess. Yeah. To me, high concept is like vampires in Santa Cruz, you know, Lost Boys. Right. Or, what we do in the uh, shadows, maybe. Yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah. Blue Ruin is on the edge of high yeah. concept. And, and I guess maybe that movie does get its legs from the festival reaction and it's probably did not do well the day it was released but over time people realized how good it was yeah i think if you can generate a movie that can on its own generate word of mouth then you're in good shape and i'm seeing the wretched you know we had the directors of that on a couple times yeah and it is kill it was the number one movie in the box office granted there was on 14 screens sure but they're they're rolling out to even more shout out to the guys um drew and brett pierce but also uh i got to see that movie with an audience in austin um and you couldn't have scripted a better drive-in movie theater experience yeah it's like got fun summer vibes it's real like it's you know it's a summer fun campy movie there's like kids running around they're in a vacation town and then also there's like big crazy scares and a monster it's like perfect for a fun cast that is all kind of mildly familiar but not famous and there are people posting on Instagram, on YouTube, on Twitter saying like, yeah, I just watched this crazy movie, The Wretched, because, you know, they were lucky because it was kind of the only movie to watch. But once people watched it, they're generating the buzz they need. Yeah, word of mouth. I mean, what a silver lining for those guys. So congratulations. Anyhow, we should talk to Clark. But I do want to remind people that we have a Patreon page. Patreon.com slash just shoot it pod. It's where 
you can throw a few bucks to the podcast if you like it. Uh, we'd appreciate it. It's really fun to make and it's really fun to know that people are invested in it. So if you feel like you've gotten something out of this podcast that's helped you in your career and you want to give back, then check it out. If you give $10, then you will get a Just Shoot It podcast hat. And if you're not interested in supporting the show on a month-to-month basis the way Patreon is, you can check out our brand new Tee Public store. We'll have a link on the website. If you like wearing t-shirts, we've got two to choose from. They're still shipping throughout all of this. So if you're interested in having a Just Shoot It t-shirt, check out JustShootItPod.com and we'll redirect you to the store. Yeah, if you have a weird head shape that does not look good with hats then uh, you just wear this T-shirt. You point to the T-shirt when you're on set. You don't have to talk to anyone. It's awesome. Yeah. Okay, with that, let's talk to Clark Duke about how much we loved his old web show. Hey folks, we're interrupting this incredible episode of the podcast to tell you about a new sponsor that we're working with, Front Row Insurance Brokers. One of the challenges of being a filmmaker is that there's a lot of risks that we take and we really just want to focus on making good stuff. So what if there was a company that could take those risks, manage them for us while we are being artists? That's right. Front Row Insurance Brokers arranges film production insurance to cover the risks associated with your production. They cover features, TV shows, documentaries, commercials, music videos, webisodes, basically anything you can watch on big media or phone-sized screens. Yeah, Front Row will help you focus on your artistic vision by transferring all the risks to them and minimizing your production hazards. And they cover any budget from $2,000 all the way up to $200 million. There's nothing that's too small or too big. If you are shooting in Canada, use coupon code JUSTSHOOTIT50OFF for 50 bucks off your film production insurance. That's promo code JUSTSHOOTIT50 off to save 50 bucks. And if you're shooting in the U.S., that same code can be redeemed offline by mentioning it to a broker, by email, or over the phone. It's like a cool password if you're in the U.S. That's just shoot it 50 off. Check him out. Let us know how it goes. We're here with Clark Duke. Thanks for coming on the podcast. Congrats on your new movie. Thank you. So before we get into Arkansas, I feel like Matt and I have to tell you that we're pretty big fans of your web series back in the day. Yeah, Clark and Michael. Thank you. It's funny because I've been reposting them on uh, Instagram the last like week or two. Well, first of all, Lionsgate asked me to get an Instagram. I've never had any social media until like a month ago. <laughs> so it sort of started just like, oh my God, I don't have any idea of what to post on there today to be interesting. So I realized you could put longer videos up. So I've been posting them and uh, one of them got like 100,000 views the other day. And Finn Wolfhard from Stranger Things messaged me. and was like, oh my gosh, I love Clark and Michael. <laughs> I was like, oh wow. <laughs> like... Because, you know, in my, cause, like, in my head, I'm always shocked when anyone's seen it. Mm. I mean, even, like, to this day, like, the numbers on YouTube are not huge or anything. So, yeah, that is very nice to hear that you guys like Clark and Michael. <laughs> but you got to keep in mind, like, this is, like, a year or six months after YouTube came out. Like, there was yeah, no... Like, like, yeah, like, like, it wasn't even, like, a given that everyone had broadband internet yet. Like, we were so... <laughs> It was so ahead of its time. Yeah. Back then, DSL meant something else. Right. 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 It was so ahead of its time that it was almost silly. Yeah. Literally, you had to explain what a web series was. You probably didn't even use the term web series yet, right? Like, it was just like, oh, we're making this short TV show. Yeah, I'm not just saying this. I'm I'm not sure that we weren't, like, the first one, at least from, like, a major player. You know what I mean? 
Right. Like with lighting and cameras and actually yeah. taking it kind of I mean, seriously. we just we just had two kinos, but yeah. No, I think they should teach us in the in the film school textbooks. <laughs> and that's yeah. my goal well, for the we show. We're uh, trying to get that going. Yeah, I'm lobbying to to get in the history books. Well, so the other interesting thing about that show is it's your first directing credit, at least according to IMDb. It's you, Michael, Sarah, and Max Winkler as the directors of that show. Yep. Were you guys all doing it together or taking turns? No. So the, the pilot episode was my thesis film at film school. I went to film school at Loyola Marymount out here in L.A., and the pilot was my undergrad thesis project. And Michael was doing, I think, the first season of Arrested Development at the time, so he met Max Winkler through Henry Winkler from the show. And mm-hmm. Max had some childhood friends, all these rich Brentwood kids that grew up out here that worked at CBS. So that's how it got over to CBS at the time. But yeah, I directed the pilot and then I did one, two, nine, and ten. And then I think Max did a couple in the middle there. And by that point, you were already pretty established as an actor, right? It wasn't like oh no that not was a, your no way not in, at all so like... <laughs> no no not at all that was totally my way in. I mean so I had worked as a kid but then after my weird brief accidental child acting career we just went back to Arkansas and I went to high school there and then moved back out here for film school but I had been auditioning in college with no luck at all like couldn't get arrested or a commercial or anything even though you were on fifty four episodes of Hearts of Fire. <sighs> Yeah, but that was like 20 years prior or something, so it, it, it didn't translate. Well, I guess you know, <laughs> at the time, I don't know how many years it was, but uh, yeah, even though I was a wily industry veteran, as an adult or, or a young man, I was starting over. So no, I, I at the time, Clark and Michael was the thing that got me back in the game. That's awesome. Yeah. And so a short 13 years after, you directed your first feature. Yeah. Everybody keeps asking me, so what made you decide to direct? And I'm like, well, that's always what I've been trying to do. Like, that's what I went to school for was I thought I would be a writer director. And and Loyola's program was very, I mean, I can't speak to it now because like you said, it was 15 years ago. But at the time it was super production based. It was way less theory, way more physical production, which I liked a lot. Because I, I actually moved out here to go to SC, but I didn't like the way the program was laid out at all because only two or three kids per semester get to direct. Everybody else has to work crew positions. And I was like, well, I want to direct. I want to make stuff. And and at Loyola at the time, undergrads made, I think, two films and grad students made three films. So yeah, I've wanted to be a movie director since I was about 12 years old. Like that's what I wanted to go to school for. That's what I moved back out here for. And I mean, really, that's what I was trying to get out of Clark and Michael more than like me being an actor was Mm -hmm. me being a writer director. And it didn't work out that way. I started working as an actor, which has been a blast. And I love acting. But I've been trying to make this movie in some fashion for about 10 years. And I've directed stuff in the interim. Like, I did a pilot for Funny or Die. I did a pilot for TBS. I've done short films, shorts for Funny or Die, stuff like that. It's funny, though, because I, like a lot of the interviews and stuff I've been doing so far for the movie, it's like, so what made you just decide now? You thought you could direct because nobody <laughs> knows the long time you've been pushing this rock up a hill right it's funny because even people like you are actors that have worked on giant films and tv shows and everything i think there's this illusion that it's just easy like oh we Mm -hmm. recognize this person so we're just gonna give them a movie right yeah i was on a network tv show so they just uh green light everything (laughs) right 
Yeah, no, if, if, if anything, I, I keep telling people nobody wanted me to direct this. Like even my own like reps didn't, <laughs> didn't think I, i'm not joking your like, family's it, like clark we don't think <laughs> no my family was supportive but that was about it i mean the the initial like they're like you're gonna put us in the movie right <laughs> uh, <laughs> my mother and my brother are both in the film actually i mean my brother has a big part in the movie but yeah being a known actor definitely helps you get the script read i mean it helps just like open the mm-hmm. doors for sure but it, it wasn't like anybody just opened the checkbooks up because because you're an actor. Well, l- let me ask though, because you you have managed to put together an incredible cast, right? Like, yeah, it's star studded. It's filled with so many awesome people. Did you find that you had access to them, and was that part of the process of getting things greenlit? Or, or tell us about that a little bit. The process of getting the movie greenlit and made was horrifying, as I'm sure it is for most people making an indie. I don't know if that makes people feel better or worse to know that it was this hard, but both. both yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah it, 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 I mean, you know, it's that it's the, the fucking chicken and egg thing of like, no cast wants to attach to your movie unless you're financed. Nobody wants to finance your movie unless you have cast attached. So for a long time, you're just kind of like via the agents. Cause you know, I was as an actor, I'm at WME. So like you do have access to big movie mm-hmm. stars potentially. But really, the only thing that moved the needle or changed it or made it a real movie was Liam Hemsworth saying yes. Mm-hmm. And and tell us a little bit about how, how did that happen? Was that just through your agency? Yeah, yeah. He's We share some, some agents over there. And you just kind of cast this wide net because you're like, you don't know who the hell is going to respond or not respond. But Liam was one of my dream picks that I never actually thought we would get. Because I know it it sounds odd, but I had seen Liam in this this Western, this Australian director. I, th- I can't remember his name, and the movie was pretty terrible. But it's Liam and Woody Harrelson. Uh, Baz Luhrmann. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> I think that's it. No, but he did he yeah, did some on. he did some movie with him and Woody Harrelson, and like the movie doesn't totally work, but Liam's really awesome in it, and mm-hmm. and he carries this movie not saying much. So I was like, holy shit, like Liam Hemsworth's a really good actor. And I feel like people only know him from like Independence Day and Hunger Games and stuff. But like, I was like, he's got the goods. So we sent it to him. And then like, you know, like weeks go by. Like, I mean, it's just like the raising the money was like this agonizing, like two year process. It was not a fast process at all. Just trying to get somebody to read a script is like a three month waiting period. It, it drives me completely fucking insane. Because you send me a script, I'll read it in a couple days. Like, I just don't get it why it's like pulling teeth to get people to read stuff. And then inevitably, whenever somebody would read but it. If you're, but if you're on set shooting something. Yeah, that's harder. Like, do you need it when you get a script, someone's pitching you the script, right? They're saying this director did this or they already have this attached or they've got to pay or play offer or they have like a, a shooting schedule, right? I guess what's interesting about you is you have probably been in the situation of receiving scripts and offers, so you know what the other side looks and feels like. Oh, I, I absolutely get it, because I've literally got these offers and these scripts, and I'll be like, well, is it is it a real movie? Is it financed? They're like, no. And I'm like, well, call me in two years when it's a real movie. But don't they sometimes say to you, you say yes, then it's financed? I'm not, I'm not, I wish, I wish. Um, I'm not getting your movie financed. Me acting in your movie is not getting your movie financed. Or, I mean, it might get a, a certain budget of movie, but not, not, 
It didn't get this movie financed. <laughs> or, or even like, I think there is a little bit of, oh, well, Clark said yes. So maybe there are a few other people who are like, oh, well, you're, you know, he kind of vouches for it. Maybe that kind of helps yeah. it make it, makes it I, easier to say yes for other people, basically, you know. I, I'm, I'm sure there's some truth to that. And I appreciate you uh, flattering me by acting like that, uh, I, <laughs> that other people would care I was in the movie. But... The, the reality is for financing an independent film, this is like what I learned, is that so much of the movie is financed by foreign pre-sales, which is if you've got X or Y actor in your movie, these investors, based on knowing that they can sell the movie in these foreign territories, know they're going to get this return. Mm-hmm. It's a pretty safe bet. I feel like that's a, a model that people used to talk about a ton, right? And yeah. it feels like it's it's kind of disappearing a little bit more. But your film was financed off of a, a pre-sale model. You were slicing up foreign territories to find, you know, nickel and dime it together, basically. Yeah, which I hope I never, ever have to do again, because that's how your movie ends up with 18 executive producers in the crawl, like that right. Family Guy uh, sketch, which in addition to looking stupid, you're left to deal with a lot of people that don't really care about your movie at all or they don't even have any vested interest in the movie being good all they Mm -hmm. care about is you know how's it going to play in romania or whatever territory whatever territory i own but there's this idea right that matt what you're saying that it's not happening anymore is that it used to be you have bill from true blood he's going to be the star and you'd get a certain amount of money but clark has liam hemsworth john malkovich vince vaughn i think that's the difference today a big tv star Right, isn't going to get you that. Right, but these A-list stars. What I found out just from like the two years of meeting with producers, financiers, on and on down the line, is basically if you've got one of these guys like Vince, like Nick Cage, like Bruce Willis, Kurt Russell, Mm -hmm. like you know, there's a list of these guys. You can basically get anything four million dollars or under Greenland, (laughs) like just by virtue of having like (laughs) I'm seriously. Like four million was like the cutoff point. Like they figured out the math to anything four million or under. It's like yeah, sure, go ahead. You know, like John Travolta was one of those guys. I remember we sent it like Travolta's agent one time was like, uh, and this is way early on, was like, uh, yeah, John really likes it. And I was like, oh, he read the script. What do you think? And they're like, no, no, he hasn't read it. And I'm like, what are you? What are we talking about? Like, there's just like a list of these guys that if like if you send me like a million dollars. I will come film your movie sight unseen. <laughs> yeah, I think Christopher Walken does that. Yeah. Like so apparently, so like, does, um... like Bruce Willis apparently will just show up for yeah. two days, like do just whatever. Mm-hmm. There's just like a bunch of these guys. <laughs> yeah. Bruce Willis is a funny one too, because for such a long time he wasn't doing that, and then all of a sudden there's like a million Bruce Willis movies now that I've never heard of. I know a bunch of foreign distribution people, and I, I have pitched them ideas before, and they always say, the problem with that is it's execution dependent. <laughs> right. You know, it has right. To, it's a great idea, but it has to be done well for us to like it, as yeah, it opposed has to, to be good. Attack uh, of the Killer Spiders or starring Vince Vaughn, right? Right. Right. Like, and, those are the things that hedge the bets, because they just care about the poster at the film markets. Right. Yeah. And you got to really be careful about who you get in business with because there's a lot of people that that's all they care about. 
I want to ask just one last casting question, then we'll get into the movie. I think our listeners, we hear this all the time. They're like, I got the script. Yeah. It's a million dollar movie. All I need to do is attach this person and the money goes <laughs> and I'm going after like, you know, Josh Hartnett or something. And there's sometimes there's an idea like what Matt said, like your movie, you have like Brad Hankey in there, who's like, I think a very respected actor. A lot of actors know him, but he's yeah. not a face maybe that people know. But you might say, well, look, Brad's doing it. And he's this respected actor that's been in these great movies. It must mean this movie is of a certain quality. Maybe Liam, you would also look at this movie. And so I think that there's this idea sometimes like, oh, you know, Clark Duke, he knows Michael Sarah. Maybe if we cast Clark in this role, it'll be easier to cast Michael Sarah in this other role because they're friends. I was attached to this movie that is not going to be made, but we were talking about Megan Fox for a second. And I don't remember if it was producers or EPs or distribution people or agents, but someone was like, well, if we can get Brian Austin Green to play the love interest... <laughs> <laughs> then we could probably get Megan Fox as well. Be like, oh, it's like a family that's, vacation. That's so dark, but yeah. Uh, so is that a thing, or is that just something that outsiders think is a thing? Uh, that's probably or is, a thing. there's probably no rules. That's well, there, first of all, there's no rules. There was literally, I remember at one point, there was a finance guy that was like, "I'll give you the money, but my daughter has to play the the female lead," and I'm like, "No." <laughs> Like, that movie will suck. Like, like, uh, who's your daughter? Ex- <laughs> did nope, did you mean, have nobody. a personal threshold of like, oh, she could be, maybe I'd throw her a line if I get my movie made? Uh, Well, a line's one thing, but I mean, this was like yeah. one of the lead roles. I mean, the, the guy in the movie, Chris Mullinex, like he, he floated us the, the money for pre-production, but more because of just like being yeah. a, a really nice fucking guy more than like a debt of gratitude. Plus, he's really good in the movie. But, you know, you put, like, friends and family in the movie sometimes just because it's fun. I mean, as far as what you're describing, like, trying to get somebody because you cast their spouse, like, I think that probably happens on the shittier movies. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, mean, that's a pretty, like, that's a pretty desperate ploy. Like, that's, that's rough. The real answer is there are no rules. You're literally trying to hustle money from, like, dentists in Iowa and all kinds of shit. Like, it's just nuts. Independent film financing is so, like, Wild West crazy. Like I said, it was the worst part of the process that I really hope I don't have to do again. I've been yeah. in casting sessions, and I'm sure you guys have too, where they're like, yeah, this is uh, Mira Sorvino's husband. This is... Uh, <laughs> <laughs> this is like, yeah, we, we thankfully didn't have anything like that. Let's go, let's go. Well, so tell us about the movie. Yeah, so I mean, I'm from Arkansas. I'm from Hot Springs right. where the, the book is mostly set. And my grandfather was this kind of like known associate was the FBI's term, like a uh, tertiary Dixie Mafia character. I'd always wanted to write something about him, but I never mm-hmm. like figured out the way into it. And then when I read the book, Arkansas it had this character frog that Vince Vaughn plays that sort of thematically scratched the itch of like what I wanted to tell about my grandfather. And then it also had these, these two younger guys, which are the parts me and Liam play in the movie. And this is sort of more subtextual than text, but, and it really kind of developed a lot in my head over the last like decade. But I mean, basically after like the economy collapsed 10 years ago, the little town I grew up in at a hot springs built around a sawmill and when the housing market collapsed, the sawmill mm-hmm. closed because they're not building houses and buying lumber. And I really watched the decline of this little town I grew up in and what it did to a generation of guys that were like my age and my brother's age, that you would just see everybody kind of getting on meth or joining the army or both. And I thought it was kind of an interesting moment 
just to talk about these kind of disenfranchised dudes that are just kind of checked out of society. And that it, it all kind of grabbed me with the book. I was like, oh, this is kind of saying a lot of stuff that that I, I, I'm really interested in. So yeah, it was kind of a, a perfect storm when I read it of like being where I was from and like this world I want to talk about. And mm-hmm. also just me really relating to the plight of these guys that are just like sick of society. Certainly like there's that mixes of different sort of tones and styles, right, that you're doing. It's funny, it's character based, but it's like still like a noir crime sort of caper, right? Kind of all mixed into one. And it reminded me a lot of, I think, the films that like you grew up watching in the 90s and 2000s. Do you know what I mean? Like independent film used to look a lot more like your film. Absolutely. I turned 35 the day the movie comes out, May 5th, everywhere on Blu-ray, DVD and on demand. And so, like, for me, that 90s Miramax generation of guys, that's my shit. You know, Soderbergh, Tarantino. Early Coens, even. Yep. Yeah. Coen Brothers. And then yeah, Paul Thomas Anderson. That's 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 my stuff. Like, those are my guys. And then from there, you know, like, you get into that when you're 12. And then from there, you get into the, the guys that they were into. Like, Tarantino takes you to De Palma. You know, Scorsese, obviously, is huge. Paul Thomas Anderson took me to Robert Altman, who's probably my favorite director. Mm-hmm. Like Thieves Like Us was kind of a big influence on this movie, and a lot, and and it's kind of like structurally similar in a lot of ways, like with the, the two guys and a girl. So I think a lot of listeners at home will be like, "Oh yeah, I I love those movies too." Right. But I think there's that thing of like, I have these big ideas that I want to pull off, and then you get on set, and it's an indie budget, and time is going quick, and you've only got so many days with Liam Hemsworth. Were there any practical things that you found in the shooting of your film that you thought like, oh, like I definitely want to do that again or, or, you know, I wish I could do this over just kind of like the nitty gritty of executing on those kind of loftier ideas and influences? Yeah, totally. I mean, you know, the movies, a lot of people talking in rooms, so I wanted to give it a big sense of scale. So one of my favorite movies is Once Upon a Time in the West, and that was something that me and the, the DP, Stephen Meisler, kept kind of referencing is our true north is like visually tonally um, with the score mm-hmm. you know I had Devendra Bonhart do this kind of he called it jailhouse Morricone like because we didn't have an orchestra but he had a synthesizer mm-hmm. but to your question yeah we kind of built that into the shot listing and the planning and even down to like we shot the thing on anamorphic lenses because we want to give what could be the small movie of people talking we want to give it scope we want to give it a bigger feeling because it's not a Terrence Malick thing. There's not these big vista shots of Arkansas. Like, that's not really what the movie's about. The movie's not like some love letter to Arkansas. Um, and Arkansas is really beautiful, like, visually. But that's not what the movie was. But so much of the direction of this was in the prep and the planning and the pre-production because we had so little time and, and so few days that we knew we had to be super disciplined in our coverage and our shots. And we had to really stick to our plan or we're not going to get the movie shot. How many days was the shoot? 25. Mm-hmm. And when the script, there's like 175 scenes, and there's, <laughs> I, f- I forget how many locations. Like, And that's stuff that I kind of didn't, yeah. like it was almost like I was like like blissfully unaware of as like a first-time feature director of like, I didn't, like if I had known how hard that would end up being, you probably would have rewritten the script so there's not so many locations. But it's also one of the things that I think really work makes the movie feel a lot like punch above its weight class and feel bigger than it is, is it does have a, like a bigger scope to it. 
Yeah. Especially when you have like a societal movie, you want to see how these people are living in all these different places. But it's hard. I mean, if you don't have any money, don't try to do any car stuff. Don't try to do fights. Don't try to do a car crash. Like, I mean, Mm -hmm. just the stuff you would expect. Or just pick one. (laughs) Right. right? Yeah, right, right, right. Exactly. Throw a few punches, but stay out of the car. Yeah. Yeah. We had these super shady, you know, like, I forget. He wouldn't take the credit line producer, so he's got some bogus credit on the movie. (laughs) But, you know, like... um. The guy that was our location manager just like disappeared on the day that that we were supposed to do all our car to car stuff. Like for the whole movie, you know, we just had a day blocked off at the end. We're doing all the driving stuff, all the tow rig, all the car to car stuff. We get there, he's gone, there's no police there. So we lose that day, basically. And then you're scrambling. So all the car stuff in the movie is really me and Liam driving, which is pretty insane. And like super unsafe and oh, like you're like the stunt drivers. Yeah, uh, there's I no. Think it's there's nothing technically towed. illegal. I think you know what? If it's not illegal, it should be. But like that's, having that's like we've these... all done that. But like yeah, oh yeah, yeah. But not on a mo- but not with like big movie stars. You don't usually do yeah, it. Yeah. You know, there's so much stuff that doesn't seem like a big deal. Like the shot where like Vince is pulling up to do that drug deal, and we're tracking beside him in the car as he pulls up and hands this bag to someone other car that's like in the rain at night with like the dp the ad myself a boom operator and someone else running beside the car in mud like there's just like stuff you think back you're like oh my god that was dangerous like yeah that's a liability yeah. oh dude we were doing driving stuff at night the shot where we we pan around from me driving to the car following us that's my brother plays that character and he's actually driving that other car and I'm actually driving the van, he gets, my brother gets on the radio and goes, I, I got to pull over. Something's fucking wrong with this car, dude. So he, we pull over. They had put new tires on the car and, uh, and screwed the bolts on with a, a cordless drill. So there was one bolt holding the back tire on and, the, and one of the grips grabbed it and just unscrewed it by hand. So, I mean, if that tire had come off, the car flips over my brother probably dies. It probably crashes the car me and Liam are in. None of us are wearing seatbelts. The the van didn't have seatbelts. We've got the entire camera crew in the back seat. I mean, you're talking about like, like a 10-person homicide because of like sketchy indie filmmaking bullshit. But that's um, like the extreme version. There's also like if Vince Vaughn needs to be driving a certain speed and he can't slow down because yeah. the camera is at a certain distance and he has to just do a, a tiny little illegal maneuver and someone sees it, all of a sudden Vince Vaughn is this crazy guy that's driving illegally all, all over the news. If I had to do it again, a, a low-budget indie film, you're just not prepared to do anything involving a car. <laughs> you know, you're just not. Like, it's just everything was a nightmare. And the fights, like, because you just, you need time. You know, you need time to rehearse. You need time to to block it and shoot it and we just didn't so that that stuff that was the stuff that was really hard but don't you think it's cool that you have that because you see these kind of lower budget films where it is just people talking and there are no fights and there are no cars and it's a cut from this right. apartment to this house to this establishing shot to this and you do that stuff for pacing and for flow and for excitement and so you have ups and downs right and tension well that's so. that's my hope is it would never occur to anybody that this is a like super low budget movie right so sure you know, I, I probably just shouldn't say any of this because, like, maybe everybody would just watch and it wouldn't have occurred to them. 
but I mean, your question was, what's the stuff that was hard? You know, what would I not hmm. like that? That stuff was really fucking hard. Yeah. I, you know, it's funny to think about, you know, you, you made the point of earlier about like just so many different locations. Right. And it made me think of how you've been on so many sets before. Right. Mm-hmm. And I, it's interesting to think about the transition from being a part of a crew to now it's your own feature film. Were there other misconceptions that you had that walking into the film, you're like, I've been an actor so many times, I know how to talk to actors. Then walking into it, you, you know, you reframed or rethought, basically. Like as far as like dealing with the crew or what do you mean? Yeah, I guess maybe more uh, actors have such a, a unique perspective on production in general. You're treated like veal. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, even yeah. like the, the idea of a company yeah. move, right? You've been right. on these movies where you go to three or four locations yeah. in a day, but from the actor's point of view, it's like, okay, um, yeah, we have a van here. Cool, Just guys. Let's in right, here. Right, right. You want something to eat? Here's some water. And here, we're going to put you in your trailer. It's already there. And okay, you're going to be ready. We're going to shoot half an hour. But as the director, it, people like, hey, we're not going to have time to hit this wing and this place. Which one should we do? Or should we try to shoot this scene at this place? And like, shit, the camera didn't make it here. Everyone else right. is here. You yeah. know, like that type of stuff that actors are usually kind of insulated from. But- to be honest, I really enjoyed it because the worst part about being an actor is the, the sitting around and waiting. So for <laughs> me, I, I preferred the 24-hour stimulus and problem solving to the like <laughs> 11 hours of sitting in a trailer and one hour of acting. It's fun. I like the vibe of like, you're like a pirate ship. You know, I've always said like, if you're going to be stranded on a desert island, I hope there's a bunch of grips there. Because <laughs> I feel like we have like some Gilligan's Island bullshit set up with like a full society. As long as somebody has like, like gaff tape, we could get something and, and going. And some weed. And some weed. Yeah yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. And like, but I mean, if you got a <laughs> bunch of guys in cargo shorts and ponytails and fucking tool belts on, like, you will get your shit done. Yeah. <laughs> Did you shoot in Arkansas? <laughs> no, I, I, I tried to. I, I, I planned to. We scouted for Arkansas. We were on the ground location scouting, like weeks away from, from photography starting, and the state called the film commission and said that they couldn't give us the tax credit anymore. They basically gave wow. all their money away to that season of True Detective that shot there. So we had, on like no notice, we had to up stakes and move to Mobile, Alabama. One of the financiers in the film had shot some other movie there. I'd never been to Mobile in my life. So we had three weeks of pre-production in Alabama. It was pretty, pretty wild. And so is most of your crew from there? The department heads were mostly at like, you know, the, the DP and the costumes and my first AD. Like they, they were all from LA that I brought in, but the, the bulk of the crew was for the most part. Cool. Which, you know, um, you get a lot of people... advantages and disadvantages. There is, yeah. I mean, the disadvantage being, like, you get some real bozos. Uh, on the, like, I never... <laughs> <laughs> like, well, this, this kind of goes back to your other question. Like, was there stuff I hadn't thought about before? And it's like, yeah, I had no idea how important a really good dolly grip was until you're having sure. to deal with somebody that's not reading your mind. Right. And that's, like, like stuff like that, yeah. You, you just don't realize, mm-hmm. as an actor, wow, I never realized what a really good props person like if somebody's really good at their department you kind of don't notice them you know by design like if they're really good at their job you don't notice them (laughs) so to see those squeakier wheels all of a sudden that's stuff that i noticed that i did not notice as an actor before was like wow there's 
a lot of positions on a crew that I had not put a lot of thought into before, but you totally need them to be awesome at their job or this whole right. chain falls apart pretty quickly. And a dolly grip's a perfect example. In order to become a truly like great dolly grip, you need a little bit of mentorship. You need to watch somebody else crush it for a while and really be competitive about leveling up and being awesome at it. Mm -hmm. And when the talent pool is just smaller, it's harder for you. You could be trying your hardest and just not have it modeled for you. And so then, you know, there you go. Like how many dolly grips are on an indie budget set all the time? Do you know right. what I mean? Yeah, I'm sure there's something to that. Because I mean, even like uh, my DP, Steven Meisler, like Meisler started out as um, an AC for for Spielberg and did that for years and years. And then he was the operator and uh, AC and operator for Soderbergh. And then wait, operator for Soderbergh. I thought Soderbergh operated himself. Yeah. I, maybe he was the, the AC and then like, like B cam operator, you know, honestly, I don't, I'd have to ask him like sure. case by not, case what it was, not interesting but, I, but, I'm, right but I'm saying that to say yeah. he's somebody that since he did work his way up from being an AC to an operator to mm -hmm. a DP, he's so fucking good at, every facet of his job that like he can eyeball distances without a tape measure. Like it's just nuts. Like he can tell you uh, like the shot in the movie where um, the truck is driving up to the house. That's, mm -hmm. you know, him operating a techno crane. And like, that's like one take or like the shot where like the, the car zooms across the bridge and then pulls in and Liam gets out and walks in the house. So it's this crazy pan and then this tilt and this zoom. That's a couple takes of Meisler operate he's just, just dialed like, in yeah. he's just so yeah. fucking so good at his job because he's and you know you hear you read about like the reason like james cameron can be so hard on people and says because he knows how to do your job and there's got to be something to that yeah as a former dolly grip i just want to say real quick that <laughs> uh one of the things that is so true about in a, when you have a smaller community of filmmakers like the key grip is going to be on the dolly or best boy grip it's just one of the positions in the grip department that someone does in a big city like LA or New York, the dolly grip is always the dolly grip. And it's such a different position than any other position in the grip department because it's really much more about the camera than about yeah. flags and condors yep. and other grip equipment. Mm -hmm. And what really bugs me a lot on set, again, as it pertains to the dolly, is like one of the main jobs, like you said, Clark, of the dolly grip is to quote unquote read the mind of the director and the DP, yeah. which basically just means when the director and the DP are talking about where the camera goes next, they should just be kind of lurking around listening. So by the time mm -hmm. their conversation is over, the camera is already there. The track is already called for. The wedges are on their way. And even if it's wrong, at least they're kind of in lockstep Closer. with you as opposed yeah. to finding them because they're at craft service and all that, that stuff. That's their most important time that they need to work is between setups, I think. And a good dolly grip knows that. Absolutely. And so much of that just comes from working with the same people on multiple projects over and over, like you get that shorthand. So like the first and second AC were guys that he hired and flew in, but then the rest of the department is all local. So, I mean, part of that is just the reality of this is a bunch of people you never met before, you know, and there's not a lot of time to familiarize yourself with working with these new people. For sure. And then sometimes there are kind of sensitive emotions, especially when you're working with a new crew out of state. Mm -hmm. And it's harder to tell them to do something differently <laughs> without sounding like an asshole. 
And yeah. and like I said, like and this wasn't just on this movie. I've I've acted in a lot of indie films, and sometimes you get people that you're just like, holy shit, this is like a student film. Like I mean, Vin, <laughs> Vince was telling me stories about uh, when he worked on the movie done before uh, Dragged Across Concrete. Like there was like a PA or somebody on the AD department. Like he said, him and Mel Gibson were just sitting in their trailer for like hours, going like, what the fuck is going on? Like why are we not shooting? <laughs> and basically like. You know, the AD had, like, radioed from set, like, okay, we're ready for him. But then whoever was at base camp had been notified, like, not to bother them or something. So, like, <laughs> so it's like they just sat there for hours because no one knocked on the door. And he said, like... And they thought that they were being divas. <laughs> yeah. And he said... I don't know what Gibson and Vaughn are doing in that trailer, but... Been waiting for hours. And then he said, like, this is another example. And it's more fun to tell these uh, these stories than it is to bash the crew on my own movie because they'll know who they are. But he was like, they got to do a, a scene in a car and, like, in the script, they're on a stakeout and using a rearview mirror to watch these guys in a scene. And he's like, the car didn't have a rearview mirror. <laughs> like, just... <laughs> like, like, that's what I'm saying. Like, you realize, like, how department, like, <laughs> you, but you realize how important uh, you know the transpo guys are. Just right. every every link in the chain, right. and also that everyone on the crew should read the script. Right, right. That's okay. Right. That's okay. That's uh, this is a great example. I had no idea that most of the crew doesn't read the script. Like that blew <laughs> my fucking mind. I, I remember we were shooting something one day, and one of the grips was like, "Man, this movie seems fucking cool." And I was like, what? <laughs> You're like, thanks. I was like, dude, you've read the script. And he's like, I ain't read it. I was like, oh. I don't read stuff. Art department is usually really good at reading the script. Though. I will yeah. give them credit. Even like every person is like, well, you wanted a little yeah. crumpet. And I was yeah, like, oh, yeah, yeah, that's yeah. just a saying. Yeah, the flip side is true. You're like, oh, I was just trying to be colorful in this script. Yeah. Right, right. Well, there's that thing of like everybody thinks the movie, you know, the the prop department thinks the movie is about this ashtray like, like whatever your whatever your job is you think that's what the scene's about yeah. so that that's yeah. really that's like comical in its own way but but yeah a huge amount of the crew does not read the script it turns out <laughs> yeah i just want to ask two last questions the first one is kind of related to what matt said and hopefully i'm not putting you too much on the spot here but can you come up with like two or three things that as an actor you learned from directors that you employed on your own set? Because you've worked, obviously, with some very experienced directors and talented people. Yeah, you know, probably the honest answer is, because I've done so much television and working in TV, you encounter so many really terrible directors. You kind of learn more from the really terrible directors than you do from the good. Sure, like, bring it. Honestly, the, the learning what not to do, I, I've probably taken more from, from that. Because, you know, the reality of my film catalog as an actor is like, it's not like I've worked with like all these like legendary directors for the most part. I mean, like Matthew Vaughn, I think Sean Anders is really underrated, and mm-hmm. I'm sure some others that I'm forgetting. But and also just being like on The Office, like there's other places. Yeah, like with. Uh, yeah, yeah, like John Favreau directed a, two episodes of The Office. Totally, like yeah. But but if I'm being honest, you learn a lot more from the really terrible ones of just like oh, I'm never gonna do that. Give us a, for instance, not naming names, but just like, oh man, I can't believe that that director said this to me or something. It just blows my mind how seemingly little thought or intention is given to stuff you're shooting. Like there's so many Mm -hmm. guys just coming in and hosing it down. 
you know, just shooting a bunch of coverage. I'm, I've done movies like that too, and I will not name the movie I'm thinking of, but where I've just been like, this guy's not a fucking director, he's an editor. Because like at a certain point, being a director is about making decisions, and if you're just hosing it down, you're not making any decisions. You're at best deferring decision-making to later. Because I just, I, I approached it from, you don't want to start sounding too like, you know, artsy or up your ass about it, but you know, I really had a lot of thought between the way that I was framing stuff and the way that we shoot certain characters versus other characters and, you know, the colors in the scenes and, like, the lenses you shoot certain people with. And it's shocking how rarely I, in my experience as an actor, have ever encountered people thinking that way. And it may just be that I haven't acted in stuff that's that great, but... I mean, those TV guys also, they just get beaten down so It's a much, traffic you know? cop job a lot of the time. Like, I get it. Yeah. yeah. What are some common mistakes directors kind of, the directors you've been less impressed with have when it comes to interacting with actors, like giving direction or working on performances? I think the main thing is just a lack of, of any direction at all. Just, which... Hmm. I, I sort of understand on the one hand, because now that I've directed more stuff and, and done this movie, especially a, a lot of times if you don't say anything, it's just because it was fucking good and you're relieved and it gives you space to think right. about something. Else. Like usually if somebody doesn't say something, it just means you're good. But for a long time, it, it took me a minute to realize that, that like, it's not that they're not interested in me. It's that they're not worried about me. And that's that's actually kind of a compliment. I always tell actors the highest compliment I pay is saying moving on. <laughs> right. Like we're moving on. Yeah. We get it. You got yeah, it. Totally, yeah, totally. Totally, totally. <laughs> yeah. I mean, but I'm not a fan of just hosing it down, just shooting every possible piece of coverage. I just think that's super lame if you're not using the camera to tell a story or, or make the audience feel a certain way. To me, you're giving up half of the tools you have going for you with making a movie. Yeah. It also, I think, makes you a little less important to the formula, right? Like totally. if they're saying, we want to hire Clark Duke to direct our movie, but you just shot Masters and Overs, mm-hmm. they're like, well, we can actually hire someone way cheaper. And, I, I mean, there's, you know, you know there's, there's a lot of guys like, you know, and so much of this, I think, is just like the way tastes cycle in and out. Like, I think after, after like, you know, whatever the first big Apatow comedy was, if it was super bad or 40 year old version or whatever. Every comedy just kind of took on that format of like mm-hmm. just improv and riff as much as you can and let's get four cameras set up at once and then we'll just chop it up. And instead of picking the best take or the funniest improv line, we'll just leave them all in. Like if somebody did four <laughs> good jokes instead of picking the best one, they'll do the first one, then a reaction shot, then do the second one, then a reaction shot, then do the third one, do a reaction shot. And it's like... That, yeah, which if I'm being honest, I just can't stand like that whole, that style of shooting, that style of editing and like folk, you can tell they've just focus grouped and tested the movie to death. Like Mm -hmm. I just But it works in the testing, unfortunately. Yeah. I mean, I'm obviously in the minority here of feeling this way, but I mean, as far as like that, those are not movies I have a lot of interest in, Mm -hmm. uh, you know, watching. If they want to, I would love to act in them if they want to pay me. And that would be cool, but <laughs> I don't know. I, I like I said, I think that that just like improving in general became too popular. Well, isn't one of the things about the office is that everyone thinks it's highly improvised and it's not really? It's not at all. 
It's not at all. Everybody thought, even like on a smaller scale, everybody thought Clark and Michael was all improvised. It's not at all. It was completely mm-hmm. scripted. Anything very good is probably not improv, like just as a rule. <laughs> right. Like you'll have sure. a line or, or something every now and then. Sure. Like a tag or a button, maybe you swap in or out. Yeah, but even like the tags or buttons, like every fucking movie now, you can just tell. Even like down to commercials I see on TV, I'm like, oh yeah, but that was a really hilarious thing he did and they kept it in as the tag. Like, I'm just like exhausted with it. Yeah. So you were supposed to premiere at South by this year. Yeah. What's the release like for you? And we haven't talked about the pandemic much because I think everyone's kind of sick of talking about it. But you are releasing your movie during a quarantine. Yeah. Tell us a little bit about the the rollout. It's pretty surreal. I mean, you know, for me, I'm I'm Southern and the movie's Southern. And like South by was where I wanted the movie to go. Um, like that was going to be our sure, premiere. Yeah. Like that, I, I've never seen the movie with an audience. It's a yet. South by movie for sure. It's totally a yeah. South by movie, and yeah. I I knew that from the get go, and I was so excited when we got in, and I was so looking forward to it because, yeah, it was devastating. But at the same time, I feel guilty to complain too much because these are such like luxury problems to have. Like, oh, you didn't get to go to your premiere at South by. But it's also like this movie's been a third of my life almost at this point that I've worked on it. Premieres are what you make the movie for. <laughs> yeah, I mean, kind of. It's it's like a victory lap, like it's catharsis. You finally get to like celebrate it a little bit because it's hard. Making a <laughs> film is really hard and making an indie film is especially hard. So I've never got to see the movie with an audience and that totally sucks. And that, you know, we were going to be in theaters and now... We're obviously not because the theaters are closed. You know, we already had distribution. Lionsgate had already bought the movie. So South By wasn't mm-hmm. as devastating for us in that regard. And, and I feel so much worse for, for other people that that didn't have distribution yet. But, I mean, for me personally, yeah, I was fucking gutted. It was awful. Like, it's still the bummer right now. I mean, the movie comes out May 5th on my birthday. So... Happy early birthday. uh, Thank you. I don't know. I want to go see it in a theater. It just sucks. It fucking Mm -hmm. sucks. But I, as far as the, I mean, those are all the cons. You said were the pros and cons. I mean, the pros, I guess the potential pro is it it may have a lot more people watch it because everybody's trapped at home looking for stuff to watch. I mean, I guess if there's a silver lining, it's that. Maybe it'll bizarrely have more eyes on it than it would have before on VOD. Um I don't think anybody knows. I mean, this is all like the Wild West. And I read that that Trolls movie did really well, but I don't think that's our audience. So I don't know if that'll translate to... Yeah. I paid <laughs> sure. 20 bucks for it. Yeah. <laughs> Ours is way less than that. With a cast like yours, they're probably all a little more available to promote the movie. I mean, I don't know. I probably <sighs> too deep into legal contract stuff, but <laughs> it seems like it's cool to have those people. It's, it's tricky because Liam's in Australia, so that makes everything trickier. And then Malkovich, I think, I think Malkovich lives in France, maybe. Um, he's somewhere abroad also, I think. Uh, <laughs> as is befitting a man of John Malkovich's stature. It just remains to be seen. Like, I, I hope people find the film. I mean, I know like with an indie, you know, your theatrical window is in a lot of ways probably just to make uh, me and the other actors feel better. Like sure. the money, the yeah, money made at this point is on VOD. So I think this has probably just accelerated that process. Yeah, and that maybe some of that marketing budget ends up, you know. Well, I, I think it I think it probably upped our marketing budget, to be honest, and kind of made us like uh, probably a bigger priority and bigger fish. Sure. 
because all of a sudden there's not any other movies with you know big name actors coming out really like they right. push like they push most a lot so many of the big movies so i don't know personally you know there's part of me that feels kind of like weird and guilty and ashamed to even be like promoting a movie right now like it feels kind of slight in light of mm-hmm. everything going on in the world but then the other part of me is, is people um, need movies right now people need movies people do need art i do think art is really important and valuable and you know if i can distract somebody for a couple hours that makes me feel good if you had nothing to do with this movie, what would you say is the best way to watch it? Fully nude. No. <laughs> <laughs> what do you What do you mean the best way to watch it? Like physically? What do you mean? like? Like Amazon Prime or how? Yeah, yeah. What's the, oh, the platform how, of preference? Oh, oh, I see. I see. <laughs> You're already fully nude. Where do you? I go? think. Yeah. I mean, I think it'll be the same movie no matter where you watch it. But it's going to be available on Apple, Amazon, DVD, Blu-ray, VOD, on demand you know, like the on-demand on your cable or satellite package. Basically, anywhere you can buy a movie, you should be able to buy this movie and watch it. Awesome. Are you cool with joining us for an unpaid endorsement real quick? Unpaid endorsements. Okay, cool. So my unpaid endorsement is this thing that Matt and I, mostly I, have been flipping over for the last week. It's this program called Descript, D-E-S-C-R-I-P-T. And it is an audio editing program that is mind-blowing in how it works. You basically load up audio, like this podcast that we are recording right now. You load up Clark's track, Matt's track, and my track into this program. It automatically transcribes all our tracks, like in dialogue. It writes out a transcript with Matt's name, Oren, Clark, in like a Word document. Then, first of all, you select all and say delete filler words. It pulls out all the ums and the uhs that we said. And then you just go through the script... And as you're playing it and hearing the audio, you can edit things, take out words, take out chunks. You edit the text as though you were editing a Word doc. So when you edit the text, it cuts the audio for you? Wow. Yeah. So say you've got a sentence you want to move to a different spot. You can copy and paste it. You can cut words. You can cut clauses. It's not perfect, but it's still pretty incredible. Insanely amazing. Yeah. And you can edit the waveforms too, but usually you mostly have to work with the text. Like yesterday... Uh, I was editing this interview with Lily Marie. She was talking about her episode that comes out March 20th, but it was April 20th. And she had said April at some other point. So you could also just cut and paste (laughs) to get the right date. Like you're sending an email. It's crazy. It is insane. And then they even have this feature, which we don't have activated on our account yet, but it's called Overdub. And you train it with your own voice. And if you flub the word or you want to add a little sentence, you can just type it in and it will say it in your voice and you can also give it some notes on intonation like more excited or more matter of fact i feel like this app is probably like a secret like russian government operation to to steal your identity but this sounds incredible (laughs) to to steal our voices yeah it's okay it makes life so easy it makes editing this podcast so much more fun because you can just look at the text you know you can skim through it really fast it's just i cannot recommend it enough i recorded some videos of me editing and I just put them on Vimeo. So if anyone is interested in seeing how it works, actually uh, send me an email or send our podcast email, just shoot it pod at gmail.com and I'll send you a link to the video if you're interested or just go to descript.com. It's, it's really awesome. So theoretically, could you just make it talk like me and do a whole second podcast appearance just of the Frankenstein? Yeah. Yeah. Big time. So there's all this ethical stuff that the company acknowledges and it only allows you to 
overdub your own voice. Sure. And I'm not sure how we're going to do it with Matt and me, but I think if I get written permission from Matt, plus all of his voice recording, he has to record what they tell him to record. Oh, sure. Then I'll be able to do Matt and me, hopefully, when I'm editing. Yeah, yeah. Jupiter, Apple. Yeah. No, it's more like sentences and like, say this very excitedly. Anyway, Mm -hmm. it's it's amazing. Descript.com. Check it out. Awesome, man. Yeah. So I've been doing a lot of dishes lately which is like now my main way to consume podcasts. I used to consume probably like four or five times as many podcasts because I was driving all over the place and now I'm just at home. But uh, Planet Money has been doing a really incredible job of breaking down the economics and financial institutions that are kind of affected by the whole coronavirus thing. And they did an episode called The Parable of the Piston about how a piston company that normally does automobile pistons in Minnesota gets conscripted into die casting and manufacturing pistons for ventilators through mm-hmm. GM. That's just like this crazy serpentine story of American ingenuity and people coming together to fast track making these pistons for ventilators in what normally would be like two or three months worth of work, like putting it into a weekend's worth of time and like getting all of these engineers and it's just like a little slice of life of what it's taking to turn this country around in a really fascinating way because a piston is one of the 750 parts that need to be basically perfectly machined to the micron in order for a ventilator to keep someone alive and this company was originally going to do like 150 of them and then literally overnight had to do 20,000 wow and so it's incredible and also like the interview like the one of the head engineers of the company who's he he's acutely aware that he's having a moment like this is the moment <laughs> of his life right like this guy who's like is like making stuff you know he's like yes. just a guy who works at a, a factory and he's like no like i'm gonna save a bunch of lives because i'm good at making pistons and it's a little bit fun which i think is yeah. really interesting that's awesome yeah mine seems really lame now but if I'm being honest, this podcast that I've been listening to a lot and really kind of in a really similar thing to what you said because I've been cooking. I'd never cooked in my life until this. Like that's not even an exaggeration. I had never cooked. I had like heated things and reheated sure. things, you know, like yeah. canned stuff, frozen stuff. But I literally never cooked a meal or a dish before. So I've been doing that a lot, obviously. And like you, I've been listening to podcasts. And this podcast I found... And they're all like five or six hours long, which is perfect too. But it's called The Lapsed Fan. And it's these two guys, and they just talk about old pro wrestling from the 80s and 90s. This is so inside baseball and so obscure. It's such a specific like like dude that's into this podcast. But it makes me laugh so hard. And, it, and like I enjoy it so much that I would like to shut them out. The Lapsed Fan. Awesome. Perfect. Well, cool. Well, if people want to follow you, you're now on Instagram. Are you? Yeah. Yeah. How can people find out more about you and your film? At Clark Duke, C-L-A-R-K-D-U-K-E. I uh, like I like I said, I'd never had any social media ever, and uh, I got on Instagram. You know, maybe I'll say Instagram is my unpaid endorsement because it's it's honestly been kind of fun, um, especially when you're trapped at home all the time. It's it's really made me feel more mm-hmm. like I'm <laughs> part of society a little bit. Yeah, Instagram is the hardest to complain on. 
It's the hardest to be toxic on Instagram. I well, think. I just don't have comments. You know? like I, I, I don't have comments from strangers turned on. I don't need the positive or the negative. I feel like the overly positive ones are as unhealthy for you <laughs> as the overly negative ones. Sure. But it's fun to see what all your friends are doing while they're locked up. Yeah. Cool. At Clark Duke. Well, if you want to find out more about this episode and the things we talked about, you can go to justshootitpodcast.com. You can email us questions. We are justshootitpod at gmail.com. And on all social media at Just Shoot It Pod. I'm on Instagram at O Kaplan. I'm at Mr. Matt Enlow. You're listening to the artist Jazar, and their music is provided by the Free Music Archive. Additional music by Musicbed. Thanks. Thanks, everyone. Thanks, Mark. Please watch Arkansas May 5th. <laughs>